when we think of the Tudors, we think of them quite quite a lot through the, the vision of what they're wearing. So it's a huge part of how we see the Tudors. It's also a really important part of how the Tudors saw themselves. Hello and welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Ilyri Lynn about fashion at the Tudor Court. But if you've been here before, thank you for coming back. And if this is your first time, hello, welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. If you love British history, you are definitely in the right place. We have a library of historian interviews, virtual tours and uh, history documentaries for you to check out on this channel. And you can also join me live each Wednesday at 3pm UK time for Tea Time History Chat Live. So, like I say, today I am joined by Aliri Lynn, a fashion and textiles curator, author and historian specialising in the Tudor period. And Aliri gained her experience as an assistant curator within the furniture, textiles and fashion department at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, before becoming curator of the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection at Historic Royal Palaces. She's appeared on many TV documentaries, including BBC Two's Art That Made Us and BBC One's Elizabeth Fashioning a Monarch. Ilyri is the author of several monographs, Fashion in Detail, all about underwear, uh, Tudor Textiles and Tudor Fashion. This book on which today's interview is based. Ilyri has curated several major fashion and textiles exhibitions, which you will have probably heard of, Diana, Her Fashion Story at Kensington Palace in 2017, and The Lost Dress of Elizabeth I at Hampton Court Palace in 2019. Most recently, she was head of exhibitions at National Museum Wales and is a trustee of the Royal School of Needlework based at Hampton Court Palace. She's currently working full-time researching and writing a new book on the history of fashion, which I'm very much looking forward to. Now, patrons have been able to submit their own questions for Ellery, which I will put to her after the main interview. And that portion of the interview will be available to all members of my Patreon. And you can become a patron, access those extended interviews and put your questions to future interviewers. And there's loads of other history lover benefits in there as well. And you can join that at patreon.com forward slash British history. You can also support me for free by clicking the thumbs up, subscribing to this channel and hitting the bell. And now let's get on with today's interview. Welcome, Aliri. Thank you um, for joining me. Obviously, we've seen each other and kind of spoken on the online history festivals that we've done three together at the, so far. One more to come in the autumn as well on Victorians, but we'll let people know more about that nearer the time. And so I have been looking forward for a very long time to be able to to speak to you one-on-one -on -one and get really sort of a deep dive into Tudor fashion at court so thank you for joining me. Oh no it's my absolute pleasure and yeah it's it's great to have that opportunity because as you say you know I've I've, I've done the, the talks um, and been on that you know incredible panel with so many other historians but um, yeah you know it's a, it's a subject that that's got so much it bears it bears that deep dive a little bit so yeah it's a pleasure to be here thank you so I I have started your your book uh oh I've got quite well as you can see I've tagged lots nice. of things in it already <laughs> um and um and you're right so what seems like 
maybe I don't want to call it a superficial type of subject, but, you know, compared to, I don't know, the politics and the mm. whatever. But no, I mean, there's lots in here and we're going to obviously, obviously yeah. uh, get into yeah, some of it's it all now. There. Well, poly- but, all, all of it is expressed through dress, as I'm sure we'll get through dress. Yeah. I like it. So I've given everyone a, a bit of a, an introduction to you and your work, but would you mind in your own words um, telling us a bit about yourself and your work, please? Yeah, sure. So I am a fashion historian and curator and author, um, and I've worked variously at the V&A um, in the fashion and textiles and furniture department, um, where I started as an assistant curator and, and got to look through uh you know all of the drawers full of all of these treasures for many years which was a huge privilege um, and then became curator at the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection for Historic Royal Palaces and that's based at Hampton Court um, so you know e- equally wonderful but um, you know if, if kind of expecting to arrive at, at the dress collection at Hampton Court and find Tudor treasures um, that's not that's not what's there so the Tudor treasures you know the Tudor wardrobe does not exist and so it prompted me to write my two books Tudor fashion and Tudor textiles about that so to sort of fill the gap of well the, the things aren't there so how can we build a picture up of what was there um, instead um, and um, I'm a trustee at the Royal School of Needlework, which is also at Hampton Court Palace. Um, and I'm currently uh, writing a new book on fashion history. So I'm deep in the research at the moment. So slightly obsessed um, with kind of you know, with research and looking through the archives and things like that. Wonderful. I think well, straight away there, something you said about the whole, you know, the Tudor, you turn up to Hampton Court Palace. Nope, sorry, there isn't. We hear about how many dresses Elizabeth left at the end yeah. of, you know, when she died. But there's nothing. So immediately that was probably a surprise to people. It was a yeah. surprise to me when I realised just how little from, from your talks and, and your book, just how little remains. And yet, what's the first thing someone will talk about in a new, you know, drama about the Tudors you know we've got a vision of what they wore and how they wore it and how important it was it was it was hugely important and you're right when we think of the Tudors we think of them quite quite a lot through the the vision of what they're wearing so the ruffs and the farthingales and the pearls and those sleeves and the cod pieces all of that if you take all of that away you know, it, it, it's a, you get a very different picture. In fact, so many of those portraits, um, you know, it's just that it's just their faces and hands that isn't swathed in loads of textiles and incredible dress and jewellery. So it's a huge part of how we see the Tudors. It's also a really important part of how the Tudors saw themselves. Mm-hmm. So they very, very different from now. Um, you know, when we have fast fashion, disposable fashion, um, back then, fashion and textiles and clothing was a really important way to demonstrate their status, demonstrate their wealth, um, you know, even their virtue, you know, that they, they really thought that how you how you, you were dressed was an, a reflection of the inner person. So if you want to really understand the Tudors, you've got to understand what they're wearing. I love it. So we know, um, I suppose immediately you think of, well, Elizabeth and her dresses, like I've already said, Henry and his 
sort of adoption of um you know clothes that showed him as broad even when he got fat you know broad up show yeah. up top but you know lovely calves and etc cetera, etc cetera. cod piece which yep. I have to say some it always surprises me that actually that's still I think once you get into Tudor history the cod piece like yeah of course they're more copies when I've taken tours um uh, some people don't know about the cob piece and there is a Henry VIII at Hever Castle with the, you know, dressed up with his cob piece and, um, and they ask, well, what's that? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a cob piece. Well, what's a cob piece? And, you, and you're, oh God, you know, it is actually a very bizarre thing. It is. Heading yeah. in a, it head, it, and they, they head in a, um, what direct, uh, in a um, disturbing direction, the cod yeah. piece as well, doesn't it? I mean, it no, it does. It's a, I mean, trying to explain that from scratch is that it's a really peculiar thing. Um, and and it did, you know, and, and also they, the Tudors were hyper aware of the meaning behind it as well. It wasn't just something that they wore and kind of forgot about, is they were, they were hyper aware of the symbolism of it. Mm. And you know, at pageants and masks and things like that, there are records of some of the gentlemen wearing even more exaggerated cod pieces um, and giving them strange and lewd and rude nicknames. So, you know, you know, desire being a, <laughs> being a, one of the tamer ones. But it was, it was a, it was a, a um, it was pure, I mean, it was purely, there's no function to it. It's purely decorative. It's purely there to show off and um yeah i mean it, you know the, the history of it is that um it that, that um men would wear um breeches and they would tie at the front but they'd have this little flap at the front so that they could go to the loo sort of little um you know they could just untie it and then they could go to the loo and then this flap became sort of a bit padded and then you know in in the early Tudor period and particularly during the reign of Henry VIII it became this you know appendage and is right there in all of the portraits it's you know it's decorated it's embroidered it's jeweled sometimes um and you know I think it is a, it, I think it is quite a cycle you know it's fashionable because you see it across Europe but I think for Henry there is also a psychological element there of you know he's not able to produce a son he does feel that very keenly, as we know. And so this kind of outward mark of symbol of virility, you know, this appendage right there, all decked out and jewelled, I think, you know, I think it's deeply psychological for him. Fascinating. So um, let's go right back then, because like yeah. I said... We, we, so yeah, we, we've, got, we've gone straight into the... Into that's the fine, because we vision Elizabeth, <laughs> we vision Henry at the 8th. What about his father, Henry the 7th? Yeah. What, is he the dowdy miser, you know, king who doesn't want to spend any money on anything, living in, I don't know, brown all the time? You know, what, what's he like with his fashion? Yeah, the answer to that is yes and no. Right. So we do, we have this image of Henry VII as the dowdy miser, and we can, you know, we, we see him, you know, looking quite gaunt, you know, in 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 portraits and in, in dramatizations of him in these kind of long robes. Um, and he was a miser in a lot and very frugal in a lot of situations we know that he um uh, didn't for example give elizabeth of york his wife quite as much money as she would have liked to maintain a, a wardrobe and that she undertook quite a lot of repairs of her own clothes mm -hmm. um 
so there were ways in which he was very frugal but he was really keenly aware of the power of dress to project status and given the way that he'd come to the throne which was um, on the battlefield but you know that his heritage was not um, I mean you know it was not as royal as he you know as royal as you know it could have been let's say that you know he was a kind of minor um, a minor claimant and there was illegitimacy as you know as I'm sure the audience knows so he didn't have that incredibly solid claim to the throne but what he did have was that battlefield win and the ability to project that newfound power now at the time um, it, they really believed that clothes made the man so it wasn't just a decorative frivolous thing outward magnificence really did symbolize your inner virtue your inner worthiness so if you were dressed in fine fashion that's because you were a fine person if you were dressed as a king that's because you were a king and so henry was acutely aware of that and so in those pivotal moments when he needed to display that power such as after the battle of bosworth um, for his for his wedding coronation for the wedding of uh, Prince Arthur to Catherine of Aragon he spared no expense so you know these are times where he decks out himself his whole family his his court in absolutely the finest fabric um you know available at the time so silks and cloths of silver cloths of gold um and interestingly one of the things that you can do is is through his reign is at those moments where he feels under threat or slightly paranoid, say, you know, for example, when Perkin Warbeck is, uh, uh, you know, arrives on the scene and says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm the real heir to the throne. You can watch the spikes in expenditure in Henry Henry's um, wardrobe receipts. So he's decking himself out um, to show his magnificence, but also to kind of bolster himself when he feels a bit under threat. So. So yes and no, he used, he he spent judiciously. That's interesting. A bit like we might, you know, invest in a new lipstick when we're feeling a bit down. Yeah, well, I, well, interestingly, you can, you can see the same spike in um, Catherine of Aragon's expenditure as well. So when Henry comes along, Henry VIII, obviously, and says, Catherine, um, you know, I'm doubting the legitim legitimacy of our marriage. And also, you know, there's Anne Boleyn waiting in the wings. Catherine starts spending more, um, a significant amount more. So you're watching the, the spikes in her expenditure. She's decking herself out, perhaps to kind of bolster her queenly status, but perhaps also to make herself feel better mm. um, or more attractive. So, you know, it's the, the equivalent of the lipstick potentially. Yeah. Interesting. So um, now how did henry that because i noticed in your book you you mentioned that henry the seventh employs the same tailor who had been the tailor to richard the third and prior to that his brother edward the fourth why would henry do that what's 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 he trying to do here by is it just because he's the only tailor in town or is there anything more to it than that um yeah i think it's really interesting so yeah he retains um george lovekin who was the tailor to the plantagenet uh, kings um and yeah he retains him now there are a few reasons for that and it you know it all ties in with with what i was just saying about 
needing to manifest your right to rule through the way you appear. Mm-hmm. And so Henry is not, you know, he hasn't been brought up at the English court in, you know, with those English royal traditions around him. He's been in exile for quite a considerable part of his life. His habits and his manners are quite French and, and Breton and, um, you know, they're quite Gallic in in that sense. So he needs George Lovekin to to dress him, essentially, to show him how the English nobility expect a king to look so that he can embody that that role for him. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, to kind of, you know, modern day parallels, I guess, are um, in the 20th century, how the, you know, the the royal family was dressed by very specific dressmakers like Hardy Amis and Norman Hartnell um, and David Sassoon, couturiers who, who knew how to dress somebody for the role, mm-hmm. especially if they were new to it. Almost like a costume, isn't it? They knew yeah. how to costume them. Yeah, exactly. And they knew the, you know, they knew they knew the fabrics and the colours and, you know, how to get hold of them and how, you know, mm. they, they knew how to dress you for the role you were about to take, exactly like a costume. So, um, we we also see um, when. Uh, in Henry VIII's time, especially, I think when when he's like going pitting himself up against <clears> Francis the <throat> First and everything, you know, the 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 clothing is sort of part of that outdoing each other. Yeah, who's who's the but you also write that about um in the book about how dress is used sometimes to demonstrate friendship, not just sort of that kind of rivalry. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yes, absolutely. One of the things that the Tudors want to do, um, in the sense of that rivalry and competition, and, and particularly Henry VIII, he really wants to place himself as, you know, one of the, you know, he he wants that competition with the other European princes. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, he spares no expense on his clothes pretty much all the time Be- and, and because he wants to have that competition with Francis I. And when they go to the Field of Cloth of Gold, it's, I mean, the the, the preparations for what they're going to wear um, is all is almost one of the, the, the biggest parts of the logistics there. It's like, well, I'm going to wear this, so what are you going to wear? And it's this back and forth, like, you know, they're preparing for this really, really big Saturday night out and they want to make sure that they're not outdoing each other. And that's all part of it. It's the diplomacy and the politics. Um, and in a way, that's a kind of sign of friendship and respect because, um, you know, the, for, for this occasion, for the Field of Cloth of Gold, they don't want to outdo each other. So they really want to meet on equal terms um on that field and so that's that's a whole part of that diplomacy is well, I'm going to wear this you know I'll wear this and then we will be equal um but on a much more day-to-day level clothing is really personal clothing is you know it's um you know it's it, it it's part you know you wear it on your body and so often the Tudors as, as, a, as an act of friendship or favor will give gifts of clothing so that's one of the ways in which friendship is shown. Um, they will allow, um, you know, it's up to the, the sumptuary laws, which I'm sure we can dive into in a bit, but they allow friends or favourites to wear things that perhaps, you know, 
that are above their rank, that's a sign of their favor. You can wear sable, even though you're not of a rank to wear sable, I'll allow you to. So that's another sign of favor. But um, another sign as well is, um, you know, on a more kind of matey level, I guess, is that, you know, sometimes Henry VIII would, um, uh, you know, he'd, he'd set up these elaborate kind of um, party, like, you know, parties, you know, masks and, and pageants and things like and jousts. And he would sometimes allow his best mate, Charles Brandon, to dress like him. So, you know, kind of like matchy matchy fashions, um, you know, and in that's, you know, that's that's a real sign of favour because generally the king is supposed to really stand out. But Henry VIII had this kind of this culture at his his court, particularly when he was a young man of, you know, he'd, he'd let his best mates, you know, he'd, he'd have matchy matchy outfits with his best mates um, or sometimes he'd dress down and appear in gentlemen's, you know, clothing of a courtier rather than a king. Um, and kind of, you know, burst into a room and, uh, and it was, a, you know, it was a big joke because, you know, his courtiers were supposed to go, oh, your majesty, we know you anywhere. You can't hide your glory, you know, your inner majesty from just shining through. So he, you know, he, there were lots of different ways that, that clothing was used to show favour and friendship and, and also that competition as well. So people probably, I imagine, then wanted to be able to dress a certain way to show status, show favour and all that. But from the other side of it, what were the expectations on people and what how they would dress? Sort of all yeah. throughout the court, I'm thinking. So I think this is a good, this is a really good place to introduce the, the concept of the sumptuary law. So sumptuary law goes way back into medieval history. It's... Um, the acts of apparel. That means that it's led, it's legislated um, and written in law that if you're of a certain status, a certain if you have certain property or money, you're allowed to wear different things. So um, if you're a, you know, if you're if you're a member of the immediate royal family, if you're a king and the immediate royal family, you're allowed to wear purple silk and cloth of gold and cloth of silver and certain kinds of fur so you're allowed to wear ermine um and so you know you see these you know for example king charles the third was you know crowned wearing ermine and purple and that goes back to the fact that you know centuries ago that's all only immediate members of the royal family could wear that um earls and dukes they're allowed to wear certain colors certain silks um certain furs the lower down the ranks you go, they're not allowed to wear those things. And in fact, you're not allowed to have a doublet of silk if you're not of a certain rank, if you're not a knight or a knight's son. Um, you are only allowed to wear a certain amount of fine wool if you earn over a certain amount per year. So that means you're a skilled craftsman, that assumes you're a professional. Um, and part of this is a protectionist thing it's to encourage domestic spending on wool for the masses oh. um because that's a huge important you know hugely important product um and part of of the country's gdp so it's to encourage everybody you know everybody who, who you know needs to to be buying wool at home um and also to encourage that that spending um at home but a really significant part of it is to make sure that your status is codified. So you can tell just by looking at somebody what rank they are. Um, and 
yeah, that's hugely important to them. So if you step outside of those boundaries, that's punishable. Um, you know, in, in if you're of the lowest status, you might be put in the stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're higher status and you step outside that, that can be a bit more serious because you might be seen as a bit of a threat to the crown if you're dressing in too princely a manner. Um, and so you might get heavily fined or you might find yourself if you, you know, if you're crossing the king or the queen too often, you might find that that's a charge leveled against you in a in, in a trial of treason, um, which happened with um, uh, within, you know, some of the aristocrats. Um, and. Yeah, so so I'm thinking particularly the Duke of Norfolk had that as a charge against him. He's dressing in too competitive a manner. So yeah, it's hugely important. And I've drifted off now into sumptuary law. I can't remember what the original question was. Well, I was wondering <laughs> what the expectations are. Oh, the expectations, yeah, were. yeah. Yeah. So we know what they're not allowed to do, but so to what yeah. are they expected to do? So they are expected to um, dress in a way that is reflecting a certain glory on the king and queen. So the courtiers, they're not allowed to dress too much like the king, but they are expected to dress in a way that is grand and lavish and dignified and quite, you know, this in some of the ordinances you see, um, you know, the, the expectations that on certain occasions they will be dressed in similar colours to project a sort of unified court behind the monarch. Because actually for those foreign ambassadors, what the king wants to show is that he's got a wealthy, unified nobility behind him. So do not even think of invading us because, look, you know, look, we've got this really amazing gang. Yeah, yeah, We're, basically. Um and so there's that. So it's a fine line to tread between like looking good enough, but not too good. Um, and of course, then the rest of the court, um, you know, those lower down are expected to be in livery. So that's often provided by the by the king. So, um, you know, you'll see the, you know, the red wool livery of the yeoman guard. You'll see mm. the red, the, the green wool of the, you know, the hunting um you know, the hunting team. Um, and as well, if you're an official on the sidelines or, um, you know, or actually even an official, a really important official. So, you know, Thomas Cromwell, you know, he's going to be dressed in in um, his finest. But what that probably means for him is, you know, black velvets and things that show his status as a, you know, as a professional working. He's not a courtier. He's you know, he's an official, he's got this job to do, and that's reflected in the black velvet that he's wearing. So um, who's expected to pay for this? Like the servants in their livery and the, like who, who picks up the tab? So if it's, um, so the courtiers will pick up the tab for their clothes. And that's really, a, that's a lot of money. Mm. Um, and we know that some of members of the nobility really struggled to afford a wardrobe fit for court. Um, we know that Arthur Throckmorton actually had to, um, uh, you know, he almost bankrupt himself. He had to mortgage his lands to afford clothes. So the expenditure, the expense of that is is really hefty. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why actually it's even more important to be at court so you can get favour and land and jobs and titles that bring in all of that money. Um, But if you've got a livery 
or say the king or queen want you to be dressed in a certain way, they will, they will provide that. So that, you know, you will get a uniform and it will get recycled and reused for, you know, if you're a guard, that, that uniform will get recycled and reused. Um, but we also know that, you know, for state events, funerals, weddings, things like that, that courtiers, maids of honour, you know, those, those staff, those servants and, and mine, you know, nobility who are around the, the king and queen, they get fabric provided for them. The nice. number of yards of black fabric or black silk for you know red or white for different events we'll we'll come on to colors in a bit because i'm interested in the symbology of the colors it's interesting there that i mean if they want to just ruin somebody just stick in a new rule and uh you know they're already struggling to pay for it then um... and it's all at the whim of the king and queen so if if um you know yeah if you're on the right side of the king you can get away with quite a lot but if you're not, then your clothes can be used against you. Are you dressed in the wrong way? So therefore, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to charge you, fine you. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah. it's a whim. So important. Um, these clothes will be going. So, um, so yeah, so, so we, we know we talked about how clothes demonstrate rank, importance, but you you alluded to it there a little bit the importance of the well we've, you've also mentioned already fabrics but the colors of the fabric the decoration that can we begin with fabrics because we we, we refer to them very often quite often especially the ones i'm about to mention i just want to know exactly what they actually are <laughs> so yeah. Like in particular, but feel free to bring up any others you think might be of interest, but cloth of gold, cloth of silver, and the other one is cloth of tissue. Yes. What, what actually are they? Right. So they are, they are what they sound like, which is kind of bonkers. So a cloth of gold um, is a silk woven with real gold. So, um, so to make a cloth of gold, you will take gold bullion and you will beat it into a fine foil or, you know, a very, a very fine film and then cut it into strips. So already the amount of labor that's gone into just that bit is enormous and the amount of expense because you're dealing with gold. Um, and then you take those fine strips and you can either use them um, as just strips of bullion and weave it in with silk and so you could weave it in with silk, you know, any color silk. So that's where you get um, red cloth of gold because that's gold woven with red silk or yellow cloth of gold that's woven with yellow silk. Right. So there, that's where those terms come. So that's one thing you could do. Or you can alternatively, you can wind that film around a core of silk um, and that can, be, that can be used as well. And so cloth of silver is the same, just with silver bullion. So one you know one yard of cloth of silk cloth of uh, cloth of gold cloth of silver is more than you know a skilled craftsman in tudor england would be able to you know to to earn in 10 years mm -hmm. and so the amount of cloth of silver that is you know cloth of gold that's constantly being worn by the royal family just makes them appear otherworldly they might you know they just must have seemed 
you know, it, it, yeah, completely ethereal. Um, and cloth of tissue. Um, this is one of those things that if you if you've studied Tudor portraits, you'll know what this is. So if you imagine that incredible portrait of um, Princess Elizabeth as a as a young princess by William Scrotts, she's she's in the red cloth of um, uh, red cloth of gold dress, um, but her petticoat is a cloth of tissue. So this is the this is the the fabric that is sort of um, geometric velvet pattern with the raised loops. Um, so I've got I've got it here. I'm just right. I'm not sure it'll right. Let's let's see. It's this one. This is the back of my book, and on the sleeves and the petticoat. Um, it's probably not picking up in detail, yeah. but it's this petticoat bit here. So it's raised. Um, it's raised loops of gold or silver on a velvet ground or a silk ground and so that's what it that's what it is um, and again the 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 labor and skill that has gone into creating that fabric is immense um that sounds even more involved than a cross of, cross of gold or cross of yeah silver. yeah it is it's got it it's sort of conspicuous consumption really because you've got this you know these these gold loops all over it there's just you know it's you know the, the intrinsic value of the fabric alone is one thing to set up a loom to make a cloth of tissue like that setting up the loom takes several weeks or months let alone actually weaving it because it's such a complicated loom process um and then often these well always these incredible fabrics are coming from abroad they're coming from italy from spain sometimes further afield from the ottoman empire uh, maybe even china so they're traveling a long way um and so they're incredibly expensive they're incredibly valuable and um you know and also they're, de they're demonstrating status and wealth um yeah i mean you know just it's, it's kind of mind-boggling the amount of work that it's went into layer on making layer them. on layer it's... it's layer on layer on layer and it's also <laughs> when it's also i think one of the things that that's really struck me is how the Tudors would have seen these fabrics in the space. If you imagine you're standing in the Great Hall of Hampton Court and it's it's night and it's candlelit and torchlit. Um, you know, if you're wearing black velvet or red wool, which most of the court is, you know, the servants and officials, those are fabrics that are very fine and very expensive, but they're very light absorbing. Um, the nobility are wearing silks and, you know, in embroidery. And so they're looking radiant. But, you know, if in walks somebody wearing a cloth of silver, white cloth of silver, say, and, you know, that torchlight's going to hit it, they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're going to look different in the mm -hmm. space to everybody else. They're going to radiate, I think, this, you know, this, this light. Um, and so, you know, it's one, one of the things, you know, about the, there's lovely descriptions of tapestries as well that have got gold and silver in them and how people would walk past them they just shine and catch little glimmers of light just popping here and there so we they have seen it in a very different way than we see them sounds like they would have dazzled again back yeah. to costume it's like yeah. the main um 
you know the main the the role the lead role yeah exactly the best the brightest costume so your your eyes drawn to them yeah yeah exactly I've, I think I've referred to them a bit crassly before as Tudor high vis <laughs> and you know I think that's essentially what it what it was about sparkly high vis yeah but yeah very nice. bling <laughs> very bling but yeah that is it th- th- just you saying there about the cloth and then on top of it it's traveled so you've got it's 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 exotic everyone knows it's had to come from abroad everyone yeah. knows how much actual precious metal is in there how long it would have taken to make yeah I'm curious about the fabric would they make their clothing based on the fabric they can get or would they commission so for instance in that um portrait that you've just shown of of Elizabeth the the that there's obviously a pattern in that Mm. um in that cloth of tissue would that have been commissioned or is that made because that's what they've sort of been able to buy that's what they've been able to buy um but um that's the that's the power of the merchants so the the merchant class gets so rich yeah they're really powerful because um so you know the Italian merchants in London they were bringing that incredible fabric from Italy which was being woven in Italy or being traded through Italy from further east but they're bringing it and then bringing up through via Antwerp which was you know consequently became this incredibly important centre of commerce and trade and they've got this base in London now the merchants have direct access to the royal court so we know that they were bringing their wares to directly show to the king um, and you know later to to the queen so they have audiences where they're bringing their fine wares and the king and queen have first dibs on the fabrics they're paying high prices for them the merchants become incredibly wealthy um and you know they're really they're a really powerful class in london and at the royal court in fact they're so powerful that they they actually end up subsidizing henry so when henry wants to go to war in france in the 1540s it's actually the merchants of antwerp and london that give him the loan um, of money that he needs to do that because they can afford to do that um, and why also why their houses are kind of little mini um, you know, mini fortresses because they have you know these warehouses full of incredibly valuable um, commodities inside them um, so they're showing their wares to the king and queen who are then choosing the best and then that's made up into outfits for them there's a couple of notable exceptions um one of those being the stonyhurst vestments so these are the these are the vestments that were commissioned by henry the seventh um and he commissioned this range of um ecclesiastical vestments um that he got all made woven to order in Florence so woven to shape these incredible church chasubles and copes with the um with the Beaufort portcullis and the Tudor rose on them. But those were, I mean, those were outrageously expensive. They were millions and millions of pounds worth in today's money. Um, and they were so they were so impressive that Henry VIII then used them at the Field of Cloth of Gold. Only a couple of pieces survive, and that's because the um because they were they were all destroyed. Um, but uh, the Jesuits 
um, smuggled some of them out of the country in the early 17th century and they've survived um, and now in the hands of Stonyhurst College um, and if worth a google to have a look at those images um yeah so but but usually usually they're working with what they've got but what they've got is really impressive yeah it's amazing those merchants must have added a, a markup for danger money i imagine transporting those fabrics all that way they would have come across a few yeah. issues yeah absolutely absolutely so um yeah and yeah they definitely would have i mean it what's really in you're saying that and it's making me making me think of the silver um but for the cloth of silver in the later elizabethan period they're getting that uh probably through piracy so or privateering i should say yeah. um because the the main source of silver in the late um 16th century is the new world the so-called new world uh, mm -hmm. which spain is in control of and they're bringing silver back across the atlantic um and it's you know and you know and, and fantastic new dyes for different colors so actually um we know that a lot of the privateers you know raleigh and drake um they were they were stealing um you know looting the silver straight off the the spanish galleons so that's how we could have got a lot of the cloth of silver yes interesting see it's all, all woven in no pun intended it's all woven in with all of the politics of the time because textiles was such a huge part of the trade for all of the european western european countries well and the ottoman empire um it was, you know, it was a huge part of, of the, it was a huge source of wealth. And so the who gets control of the alum mines or the dyes or the silver um, for the fabric, you know, kind of it's, it's making the most money. Mm. Well, of course, you mentioned wool earlier in, in making sure domestic people were buying wool. But of course, that's exactly what the wealth of uh England, England and yeah. Wales really was was built on, and and our, our House of Lords says a wool sack in the 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 chamber yeah. for that exact reason. Yeah, absolutely. It was like it was something staggering, like three quarters of England's GDP in the later Middle Ages. So the entire country was hugely dependent on the textiles trade, on the wool trade, um, and um, and being able to sell wool and wool and cloth into Antwerp um, and actually that's what one of the reasons in the in the Elizabeth in, in the sort of early Elizabethan period when so An Antwerp was controlled by is it it's in the Netherlands but was controlled by Catholic Spain so you have a Protestant country and they were being perse persecuted by Catholic Spain by Philip Philip II's Catholic Spain um, and so trading became very difficult um, and that's one of the major reasons that William Cecil um, and the wider court started to look elsewhere. Why they started to look elsewhere to the new world and to voyages of discovery, to trading with the Ottomans, trading with Russia, to trading with lots of different, and, and setting out on those voyages, so-called voyages of discovery, um, you know, those big explorations across the Atlantic, to try and find new sources of trade for the textiles, new materials, new dyes that would help keep them ahead of the game in the textiles trade. So, you know, really a huge catalyst to global expansion was textiles. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh gosh, we could go into that, but let's let's stick to. Oh, there's so much. It's, I know. It, honestly, <laughs> this is incredible that such a seemingly, like I said at the beginning, sort of almost almost niche topic mm. is actually no, it's in in front and center of so much well the, all the bigger issues and yeah so, absolutely then, <laughs> yeah it, so, it is and I think that's because we're you know I think that's the interesting thing when we're looking at history with through contemporary eyes fashion today is is seen as you know frivolous perhaps it's something that you know it's often it's often can be seen as something you know for you know, it's a side issue, you know, mm. that is not central to politics. And yet um, it was very, very central to everything, to trade, to commerce, to um, how they saw themselves, how they saw the world. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's huge. It's hugely important. So let's talk about colours, because you you do, again, you mentioned in your book, um, the meaning around different different colours um obviously you mentioned purple already that's just like yeah maybe explain a bit about why that would have been the color for for royalty in the immediate royal family but what what else what are the messages did the color of the fabric convey so the tudors are seeing they see symbols in everything everything is meaningful they really you know they they love symbolism and they're highly literate in it so you know flowers all have a different meaning lilies are pure and um you know um yeah so so you know all these flowers have different connotations all the colors have different connotations um and there's a few reasons for that that's just because you know that's that's in a way can be folklore um or um classical or biblical illusions um but also it can be about the expense of the dye. We come mm. back again to that commodity. So purple is incredibly difficult to get hold of and to make into a color fast dye that will hold. So it's coming from very far away, um, only very specific mines, um, you, know, uh, you know, certain places in the in the Far East can create certain dyes. Lapis lazuli, for example, creates a blue. So you have to kind of, um, you know, you have, that's a mineral that you have to mine. So um, it's about where the, you know, the wealth, the, the, sorry, the sort of specificity of that commodity and how difficult it is to get hold of. But it, because of that also, it has very specific historical connotations. So purple was the color of the Roman emperor. And so, um, you know, from Rome to Byzantium and Constantinople, purple has that significance. Um, and so that's how it gets handed down. It becomes this incredibly high status color that is reserved and meaningful in that way. Um, and, you know, the different colors have different connotations. Very famously, when Catherine of Aragon died, we know that Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII um, dressed in yellow. And that is shocking because um, that was the color of hope and renewal and you know it's it's a joyous color and they are in this color and we know that all you know the other colors had symbols as well so um and we we see them in similar ways so red you know was a very 
bold color you know it's blood and it's virile and it's you know it's it's it um has that kind of um property but green was very calming um it's the color of nature it's the color of you know of of uh, peace and tranquility so um um when the queen was about to give birth to jane seymour or you know one of one of the one of Henry's queens, if they were going into confinement, if they were going into labour, they were placed in rooms um, that were surrounded in green tapestries, verdant tapestries, and lots of kind of that colour that would help calm them um, and keep them steady and things like that. So, you know, all of these colours, they did have connotations, they had meanings, um, you know, both coming out of mythology but all and history, but also to do with how expensive it was to get it and how good it was. And symbols. So you you talked earlier about the the, the copes that um, Henry the Seventh uh, commissioned with the Beaufort portcullis and Tudor roses. We know he stuck a, and, and anywhere and everywhere he he could. Um, were they the first to use symbols on clothing like that, or and 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 I'm thinking it must have developed as well because Elizabeth, there seems to be some sort of, you know, e emblems and symbology in, in in all of her dress as she as she goes forward. Would you, do you mind just talking a bit about how they used? Yeah, sure. Closing? So they weren't the first to it. Um, right. I think if you look into, you know, go back into the Middle Ages, the sim, you know, the um, symbolism is uh, of clothing is rife and nobility are all and the church um and the monarchy are all doing it but they're doing it i suppose in quite um martial armorial ways in that they're using coats of arms and ciphers so it's all very overt you know they're using you know their family coats of arms or um you know family crests and things like that so it's all quite overt and if you look at the tapestries of the early tudor period it's you know big coats of arms um, or, or big battle scenes, you know, it's quite, you know, it's, it's, it's big and it's bold and it's martial. Um, but something, something happens in uh, Elizabeth's reign that that really kind of ramps that up and makes, makes it a different thing. So in the 1580s and 1586, George Whitney writes this book of emblems. Um, or publishes this book of emblems for the English court. And what that is, is hundreds of emblems with little poems underneath them. And it's emblems of, um, you know, so say a picture of a, an arrow or a rainbow or, you know, a different symbol and the meaning written in a little poem underneath. Um, and the, con you know, the connotations of, you know, so the, the, um, the arrow and the crossbow, that's about martial loyalty. So often then, um, the court might give little gifts of little crossbow um, brooches and with the little motto of, you know, my arrow flies only for you because it's about loyalty or a rainbow, which signifies um, the celestial aspire, you know, pointing to heaven. So it becomes this incredible, incredibly complicated language. George Whitney wasn't the first to do it. There was a, you know, there was a kind of European trend um, since the publication, you know, since um, you know, because the printing press was still relatively new. And so the advent of, of domestic books and, you know, non-secular books, um, 
non-religious books um, that was quite new and quite a novelty and it was nice and you know to have one of those so it becomes this incredibly ornate language but you see those emblems you see Whitney's el emblems appearing everywhere um, in dress so you see them being embroidered onto skirts, onto bodices, you see them in jewellery, you see them in portraits. And the Tudor court was incredibly, the Elizabethan court particularly, was incredibly good at reading those symbols and seeing what they meant, those connotations. And in fact, one of my one of the things I really like is that um, the little the little crossbow brooch. Um, uh, was given by uh, given to Elizabeth by um, Henry Norris's sons. So Norris, who was um, executed because of you know, charged with adultery with um, charged with um, uh, yeah adultery with Anne Boleyn. So he was executed as part of that cohort. But there actually remained quite a close affection between his sons and with Elizabeth I. And that's demonstrated in these gifts of loyalty um, and signs of affection back and forth between the two. So, you know, she was wearing these, these brooches from the Norris sons. And was this book, did he sort of collate um, symbols with their or meaning already would have been known and attached and he's sort of making this almost dictionary of them or did he make any up do we know <laughs> that's a really good question i i don't i don't know the I, it might be a bit of both but i'm guessing there but i know that he was influenced by a lot of um emblem books that were already being printed on the continent but he wrote these little verses underneath these these little verses that sort of explored the different merits of of, of the symbols. So, um, in doing so, he probably added to the language and mm. the meaning behind them. So, you know, if you're adding the word celestial into this poem, then you know you have a diff you you have a new definition for the rainbow and things like that. And you know, you see them, you see it really clearly in the rainbow portrait actually the, that hangs in Hatfield House. Um, which is probably the most eloquent um, example of the language of symbolism in the later Elizabethan, Elizabethan period. And she's got um, she's got a little glove brooch on her um, on her bodice um, or her ruff. I can't remember now. Um, but she's got a little brooch, which is sort of probably you know is a almost certainly um, a gift um, denoting loyalty and friendship. Um, on her sleeve, she's got a serpent, um, jeweled applique serpent, which stands for um, intelligentsia or wisdom. And hanging from its mouth is a little heart jewel, which stands for mercy. So these are virtues that a prince is supposed to have, wisdom and mercy. Um, obviously, she's got this incredible orange robe, which has got eyes and ears all over it. Um, you know, it's really averts a really overt way of saying she's seeing and hearing all I think on her bodice she's got these floral motifs but they're straight out of botanicals and herbals mm -hmm. and so they're more than just floral decoration they're a way of saying I'm very learned and scholarly because you know I'm I've got these incredible books out there classifying the world and this mass demonstrating mastery of nature um, and of course she's holding a rainbow 
Mm -hmm. um, and so that shows that with, with a little motto that says non sine sola iris, which is no rainbow without the sun. Um, but the rest, you know, there's no sun. She's the sun. There's no rainbow without her. Um, and so in it, she's, she's, you know, she's the goddess of flowers. She's the goddess of, you know, the sun. She's, she's everything, um, you know, that in, in this portrait, it's incredible. And the Tudors would have read it. They'd have, they'd have understood that. And does that book still exist in an actual fully formed format or? Yeah, there's a few of them. Um, so yes, I think the British Museum has got one. Um, and there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of facsimiles as well. So I've only managed to get my hands on, you know, the, the, the reproductions. But it's like a fascinating book. It's almost like, I, and I love, I love anything about symbology and coats of arms and all, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I'll pick up a book about tattoos because it will have, you know, it will yeah. just be a book of symbols and their meanings. Um, yeah, it's called so A that... Choice of Emblems by George Whitney, and it was published in 1586. So if you Google it, yeah. there are, you know, there are um, there are prints in different museum collections as well. So, um, you know, in museum collections on online searches, you can see examples of these um, of these pages. Um, so they, yeah, it's well worth having a, a look at because oh, okay. they, you know, they're really lovely. So um, before I want to ask you about jewellery and 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 precious stones and how that was used. But just before we move on, because you mentioned the rainbow portrait there. Now, I know you well. You curated the uh, exhibition at Hampton Court Palace about the Baxton altar class and whether yes. that was the. Do you think in that portrait? that all of those fabrics were actually something she would have worn? I'm thinking the eyes and ears especially, or is that something added to the portrait for the purpose of the portrait? So that's that's a brilliant, you know, that's an open-ended discussion that, um, you know, fashion historians have. So is it artistic license? You know, is it the, the portrait, you know, is it is the, is that the artist projecting that magnificence um, or is it real? I think it's depicting a real outfit. Um, so um, the, there's a, a fantastic book um, written by Janet Arnold, who is, you know, a, a really seminal, important um, fashion historian. It's, um, the book is um, uh, Elizabeth's Wardrobe Unlocked. And um, in it, she 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 discusses this and she talks about the fact that there are precedents um, of clothes that were were listed in the inventories as stained. And what that means is painted. So they were painted with things on. And so her hypothesis and I um, I think, you know, I, I agree with it, is that the robe that's shown with the eyes and ears is a stain is stained those are really painted on the silk and the reason I think it's real is that clothing was so important and um and so they you know in they would have wanted to display they would have wanted to display their finery um in detail and, you know, we know in the inventories that survive that the detail on these things is intricate. You know, the, the descriptions of them, you know, they are embroidered, they are stained, they have got this incredible detail. So from the inventories, we know those things existed. And I think that she'd have wanted to have appeared that way. You know, she did, they, they, they're wanting to show their best, their best clothes. Mm. 
the eyes and everything it just always really fascinates me and when you think about the point in her reign that that was um painted as well and she's got more and more plots she's more and more paranoid about this not naming a successor because she doesn't want them to you know sort of act on it before she's gone yeah. and you think yeah eyes and ears she's so she's wearing that around the court I've got my eyes and my ears open people You've yeah yeah exactly I think what's really interesting is that it's hanging in Hatfield house and that it's very likely commissioned by the Cecils mm. and so there's a certain if, if we're reading it that they've commissioned this there's a that, that there's a there's an element there um that's really interesting that's bringing their role in her reign into focus are they her eyes and ears mm. you know they you know as her you know in her reign they've got that role is that gift you know is that brooch of the the you know a, a gauntlet you know with they are they her right hand is that what they're saying so there's so much there that you can read into what they might want to be saying about their importance to her mm. and similarly you know we know that people who've you know other people who commissioned portraits of her so you know there's a, the, a portrait of her in Hardwick Hall commissioned by Bess of Hardwick and she's got this that she, in it Elizabeth is wearing this um skirt full of symbols you know there's fishes there's spires there's clouds there's rainbows um very likely that was painted or stained as well and if not um very possibly embroidered by Bess of Hardwick but you know is this a gift that Bess gave Elizabeth that Elizabeth then wore for this portrait as a sign of favor back to Bess you know this so there's this whole language of how people are using the the clothes you know is it it's a thank you letter or what's going on there yeah so um I said I'd like to ask you about jewellery, so I, I I I will now. So how was talk about the fabrics and the, how was jewellery used and and worn? I'm always fascinated when I notice that, like for instance, pearls aren't hanging for ears; they're hanging hanging from hair and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, obviously the fabrics are incredibly um precious, but actual diamonds, pearls, rubies, etc. How were they used and presumably they were repurposed but how would how would that happen as well yeah so um jewelry is incredibly important um and um you know we know pearls were particularly important to elizabeth um because they denoted purity and so you see her absolutely bedecked in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pearls now these could be given as gifts by courtiers or by foreign ambassadors um who are bringing pearls into the country so she's wearing them as chains she's wearing them as you know kind of details on dresses in hair as you say on ruffs on you know in, in every which way um and you know a, along with other jewels um the jewels at the time weren't cut in the same way as you know that is the brilliant cuts they're called the brilliant cuts that we see now on diamonds and jewels where they're kind of cut to radiate light they really valued big colorful uncut gems and rocks so often they are not necessarily you know diamonds or rubies they might be kind of lesser gems but just that they're really big and shiny and colorful mm -hmm. and so that's what they they value um and 
interestingly in the inventories they're not listing items of jewelry like a brooch or a necklace they're listing the nu the number of component parts so it's you know 600 pearls or it's you know a rock or a ruby of this you know a quartz or, or something and so that definitely shows us that they are component parts of different um different things you know so they're using those as ingredients in a brooch or a head dress or something else mm -hmm. and they're constantly repurposing and constantly remaking mm -hmm. and that's that's in the same way as they're constantly repurposing and remaking their clothing their ensembles so elizabeth is constantly sending her clothes back to the great wardrobe which is you know the the office of the great wardrobe to her embroiderers and her tailors there to remake and refresh um, and it's why, you know, outfits are in so many different component parts as well. So there's a bodice and there's a sleeve and there's a gown and there's a petticoat. And so the whole outfit, jewels and all, is always getting refashioned and remade. Um, one of the things I really love um, jewellery wise is the fact that, and I may have mentioned this in the talk that I gave, is that actually in the Ditchley portrait, there's the, you can see the black princess ruby um in that portrait and that was you know a, a, a ruby that well, actually it's not a ruby but i can't remember what the stone it is it's not quite a ruby it's one of those lesser gems um but it was owned by the black prince and it's still now in the state crown mm -hmm. so it's one of those only one of the um one of the only kind of links through all of those monarchs mm -hmm. um that survives, but you can see it in the Ditchley portrait and you can see it in the contemporary uh, crown. Amazing. Yeah. So, cool. yeah, very, very cool. So I, um, we talked about obviously the magnificence of the clothing and I want to talk to you about um, how they might have dressed when they were relaxing and dressing down and did they really wear all those amazing clothes all the time but one thing I would like to ask you about before we do that is their shoes in in, in <laughs> yeah. portraits it seems to be they've gone amazing 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 <laughs> shoes we'll just stick some sort of feet shaped material around the the bottom of our feet and they just do not look attractive is that the case or um yeah I they, no I think I think I think probably it's probably fair um so yeah I think you know shoes shoes that we see in portraits you know we know that they're more akin to sort of leather slippers in lots of ways um you know you've got these kind of wide shoes Henrician shoes um white leather you know you can if you look at the Holbein portraits you know they kind of these really kind of flat square toed shoes mm. there's a little bit of detail on them a little bit of cutting and slashing of the leather to add a bit of pattern um in later Elizabethan times you know the, the shoe becomes narrow with a small heel but it's a, a similar kind of you know in the portraits you know it's white leather with a bit of cutting and slashing in the next century, they get a bit more exciting. You start to see a few pom-poms and ribbons arriving. Um, but they are, yeah, they're not, they're not as decorative as, you know, as, as they, they might be. Although in the inventories, there's a bit more of a tantalizing glimpse. For example, Catherine Parr really liked hats and shoes and she liked foreign 
um, imported hats and shoes that were quite different from the, 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 the way that things appear in portraits. So we know that she liked different colours, different fabrics, um, sort of tufted hats and different coloured shoes. So then it may be that what we're seeing in portraits isn't representative and that it's chosen, you know, to kind of offset the rest of the mm. outfit. Um, but yes, they do seem very plain. I think it's because really the idea of kind of shaping to the foot, it, you know, as a, as a technology, if that's what it is, didn't arrive for a few centuries. So they were a bit crude and rudimentary. Um, you know, that we, we've got a, a couple of riding boots survive, um, but, but similarly quite plain, but in brown leather and high um, up to the knee, but, you know, not massively decorative. Um, and of course, you know, I suppose what they're wearing indoors might, you know, is, is going to be different from what they're wearing outdoors because, you know, the, the road, it's muddy, the roads aren't tarmacked. It's, you know, so maybe what they are wearing indoors are essentially slippers in, you know, in some ways. So um, it's a good question. And yeah, one that deserves actually, you know, probably a bit more looking into actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. If only you knew somebody's <laughs> writing a book about you about fashion history. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> it's just it's always amused me that, that it sort of seems almost like an afterthought or yeah. or with the ladies or the dress covers it. We won't worry about that. Yeah. Um well of course now well from not that long after the Tudors and forevermore, shoes have been such a I mean they're literally, you know, you look Catherine Middleton yeah. goes out. What shoes has she got on? Yeah, you know? exactly. And so, and there's a there's a whole thing, isn't it? Start with you know, start your outfit with the shoes. Apparently, you know, not that I've ever done that, but you know, that's <laughs> yeah, but a and thing. that's probably someone who had a lot of shoes is probably yeah the one who managed to say that and yeah. a lot of clothes then to mix them. Yeah, up exactly. Something. But so what? I mean, I've had the very fortunate experience of dress being dressed in um, Tudor gowns by Samantha Reese when we go on uh, when I do my tours she comes along and dresses some of the ladies and men up and and she brings a dress for me and I, I dress up and it, it and you feel absolutely splendid yeah but when it's hot or as soon as you actually have to do anything uh sit down eat I don't know they they start you start to be like right okay oh well you know can I get this off soon did so it, it kind of begs the question, did the royal court, the, the, the royals especially, I think, and I suppose their immediate um, courtiers, remain dressed like that all the time? Or is there evidence that they dress down, you know, when they're in private or when it's hot? You know, what do we know anything about that? We do. Um, and yes, they did dress down. So one of the adjustments they made for the temperature um, was... Uh, you know, kind of woolen layers um, um, in winter and silks in and linens in the summer. So it was a slight adjustment of materials. Um, but we know it was cold in uh, the Tudor century. They had a little mini ice age. So actually they were um, dressing quite warmly. Um, sorry, remind me of the question again. I've gone off on a tangent there. Well, yeah, just if they dress down, you know. They, they dress they down, actually... that was it. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, we know they did because um, we have some Holbein sketches 
that show um that show them in kind of dressed down wear so you know I suppose the equivalent of leisure wear so mm -hmm. you're right to say that you know being buttoned you know kind of being buttoned up in that way or pinned up I should say because they're using dresses hats, yeah. all of that yeah laughing. all of that it's you know it's a lot and it's restrict it is restrictive um so in the privacy of their own chambers and privacy is a relative term because they'd still have people around them but they'd be close confidants and you know people who were you know specially trusted um they would be dressing down they'd be wearing the equivalent of um well and they call them nightgowns but they're not nightgown you know they're not kind of flannel robes that we you know as we imagine they're you know they're still very beautiful gowns in the inventories we know that they were sort of lined with fur and they had silk um, and embroidery on them but they're these long warm gowns that basically you could kind of wear um, and they would wear embroidered coifs and caps um, along with that there is a there's a Holbein sketch supposedly of Anne Boleyn in this dress down state so she's wearing you know this kind of silk gown this with with fur um and a, a simple linen coif which is her headdress underneath what you know the hood so if you take the hood off you've got the, the linen coif um and that's how she would have been with her intimates uh, you know her close um you know in, in very kind of intimate private moments um yeah so they did dress down they did dress down it's probably a lot more comfy Good. I feel better about hanging out in my jogging bottoms and slippers. Yeah, exactly. The now. There, there is a Tudor equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we're going to move on to questions from my um, patrons shortly. Um, they've got interest, very interesting questions, including ones about poisoned dresses, uh, fashion designers, <laughs> trends. There's, there's, they've put forward some brilliant questions. But before, so before we end the main part of the interview and move on to that, can you? Um, would you like to just tell people where they can find you and um, you know and your work if they want to um, look you up a bit more and what you've been sure. doing? Sure. Um, so my books, I've got Tudor Fashion and Tudor Textiles, are available um, online from Yale University Press um, or from Amazon. Um, but um, so if anybody wants to have a look there, there's you know obviously a lot of detail in there. Um, but in terms of talks or um, things, you know, lectures or, or things that I'm doing, I'm a bit, I, I don't have very many, I'm, I'm not particularly as, as good as I should be on advertising all of that, but I do have, um, um, I do post on Instagram. So it's Larry underscore Lynn and um, I post you know, talks or tours or things that I'm doing up there. Um, yeah, I should probably get a bit better than that, but there we go. Well, as long as you post, well, post it on I there. Post it somewhere. Follow you and post it somewhere and people <laughs> yeah. can find you. And of course, Hilary, you'll be back to speak at the Victorians Online History Festival this yeah, autumn. Looking for forward to it. Amazing. Yeah. So talking about so underwear, which is my other area of uh, expertise. Indeed. Going to get into right under the clothing. and Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you we know that one of his jobs was to go to Thomas Cromwell's house the day before he was executed mm -hmm. so you know his stuff is already being getting a head start uh, yeah so you know there's no reprieve for poor Thomas he doesn't know it at the time but you know Nicholas Bristow went to his house and itemized and took out all of his clothes 
and uh, took it on a cart to Hampton Court Palace and um, gave it out to courtiers as as you know kind of redistributed it the only thing that hen but henry expressly asked for thomas cromwell's robes of the garter 